Welcome back to University of Minnesota Extension's Nutrient Management Podcast. I'm your host, Paul McDivitt, Communications Specialist here at U of M Extension. Today on the podcast, we're talking about sulfur. We have three members of Extension's Nutrient Management team. Can you each give us a quick introduction? My name is Daniel Kaiser. I'm a Nutrient Management Specialist with the University of Minnesota located out of the St. Paul campus. Uh, I'm Paolo Pagliari. I am also a uh, nutrient management specialist, and I'm located at the Southwest Research Outreach Center uh, near Lamberton. Hi, this is Jeff Vetch, and I'm a nutrient management uh, researcher here at the Southern Research and Outreach Center in Waseca. Paolo, can you uh, start us off with just kind of an introduction to your atmospheric nutrient deposition research, including about sulfur deposition? Yes, of course. Um, so Sulfur is an interesting uh, nutrient, right? Because uh, back when we started burning uh, coal with high sulfur content, all that sulfur would burn up and go into the atmosphere and then it would rain and then that rain would bring that sulfur down. Uh, And that would supply enough sulfur that crops would not need any additional sulfur to be applied. Uh, And for a very long time, for a few decades, there was no talk or no research on sulfur fertilizing for crops because we knew that there was enough coming down. And then as we got more efficient at removing sulfur from coal and start burning more clean coal, the amount of sulfur uh, and and methyl diesel and other, uh, not only coal, but diesel and other uh, petroleum products also had sulfur in them. But as the efficiency in removing that sulfur started, um, we saw a a pretty big decrease in in sulfur coming down the rainfall. And I think if you look in the records, um, back 30 years ago, there was as much as 30 pounds or more of sulfur that would come down per acre with the rainfall. And today in Minnesota, there is uh, usually between four to eight or 10 pounds of sulfur per acre that comes down with the rainfall. Um, and, and so I had, uh, I had some ideas to, to do some investigation on nutrient deposition with the rainfall because there was some uh, data that we could not explain just by looking at fertilizer application, mostly talking about nitrogen in some of the trials that we had. So we reached out to AFRAC uh, and asked them to fund uh, a study where we were looking at uh, nutrient deposition throughout the state. Uh, and in the first year, we measured sulfur, uh, and what we found is that we are right there in that average between uh, four to eight pounds of sulfur is coming down uh, with the rainfall in any given year. So sulfur is a little tricky to measure. So we we were we did a good job, the best we could in the first year, uh, but then we started to see too much variability with the measurement, and now uh, it's it's not very reliable, but. Uh, we know that it's not more than eight pounds, but the, the exact amount is hard to tell because it's a little bit uh, variable and, and we can't really be very precise on that measurement. And, and that study, we're also measuring other nutrients like nitrogen was the main focus uh, and some other nutrients that we are finding to be present in the rainfall and the snowfall as well. Great. Um... Getting back on the sulfur topic, how did uh, the dry conditions this year impact sulfur availability? Do dry soils mean sulfur responses will be greater? Well, that was one of the things I know, I, I know Paul, you sent out uh, an email on an article you found that there was uh, some people talking about more sulfur responses in dry year. And 
you know, I'm not necessarily sure that's true. I mean, one of the things we do know with, you know, as Paulo was talking about atmospheric deposition, I mean, certainly we'd be missing that four to eight pounds. I don't think necessarily, though, that means that we need to apply all that. I think a couple of the things that are more likely going to be impacted, particularly with dry conditions, is if your surface soils are dry, we're likely not going to see some of the mineralization that we do in the past. Um, and maybe affect some of the oxidation of some of our elemental products because that's, um, you know, moisture and temperature driven. But, you know, the thing that I, I'd be curious on though, to see if, if some of the sulfate that we don't leach out of that surface soil, you know, that might counteract some of that, that availability. So, you know, we'll, we'll see what the end of the year brings when we start um, taking yield. Uh, looking at some of my trials um, earlier on, I mean, it, it certainly looked like some, you know, we've had some success with, with some of the elemental products, particularly the co-granulated sources that are elemental mixed with other fertilizer sources, such as MAP or the, the product we're using actually is mixed with potash, um, that it's looked just about as good as, um, as um, we're using potassium sulfate, but it's the same thing as ammonium sulfate. So it'll be interesting to see what that looks like because the, the, the Plots don't look all that different this year. Um, so, you know, probably not seeing that as big of an issue. And it wasn't one of the things, I guess, that I was overly worried about. Um, I'm kind of curious, so this fall, what's going to happen? You know, if we do tend to stay dry, uh, just looking at um, what some of the soil test values are going to be are coming back. I mean, normally I don't see a big difference in many fields because they'll be anywhere from four to six ppm no matter where I sample other than you know maybe some areas in the western part of the state where they have free gypsum in the profile which would be much higher but to see whether or not those those are trending towards the higher side this year just because we just haven't leached some of the sulfate. Um, the other thing that uh, we're trying to look at although unsuccessfully right now is to look at um, what's happening in terms of forms of sulfur and how they change over time because I do think we, we see some of our forms that are available change over to unavailable forms. It's kind of a, a yearly cyclical pattern. If it stays dry, you know, will that be as much of the case? But, um, you know, it, it's going to be, I think, a toss. I mean, it's like I said, just looking at some of what we've seen, I'm, I'm not so sure we're going to see too much difference um, than what we've seen in, in past years between in some of the products and also availability. I think it's going to be similar rate um, in terms of, you know, five to 10 pounds in most cases we've seen be an optimal rate and see the, the same differences among the sources that we've seen for the past few years. Yeah, so what I have seen uh, for other nutrients, and it applies for sulfur too, because whatever's in the atmosphere, what we have found is uh, depending on the amount of rain you have, that's going to determine how much of that nutrient is washed off of the atmosphere. Uh, because it appears from the research we have done and the other nutrients we're looking at, there's a constant amount of, uh, you know, of, stuff or pollution or whatever the source of this is, we can call it pollution, a constant amount of pollution that is in the atmosphere at any given time. And it seems that it needs about one inch of rain in a day to wash, to clean off the atmosphere totally. So if you have a rainfall that is like a quarter of an inch, that's going to be very concentrated, right? It's not going to wash everything because there's not enough water to bring everything down. It's going to be a very concentrated rainfall uh, with all the nutrients in there. And then if you have a two-inch uh, rainfall event, and we have seen some of those, like especially at Wasika, um, there has been some really heavy rainfalls in the south southeast part of the state. 
uh, two, three, four inches is not uncommon to see. So those are going to be very diluted because what happens is you're having a fixed amount of pollution, then you have a very large amount of water, and that clears the atmosphere totally. So that's what happens with the concentration of nutrients in the rainfall. It changes based on the amount of rain. If anything is higher than uh, one inch, you can be sure that the atmosphere is clean, everything is washed off. And then the more nutrients, the more rainfall you have just dilutes the nutrient even more. And the, the very small rainfalls, like a tenth of an inch, that's going to be highly, highly concentrated. How do the dry soils affect which source of sulfur you apply? Well, you know, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I mentioned this before. I'm, I'm not so necessarily sure we're going to see a big difference in um, some of our products. I mean, it might impact some of like the, um, the sulfur bentonite products um, that rely on water uh, to, you know, essentially the water swells the bentonite up and it's supposed to fracture and break apart and scatter the sulfur. So, you know, any of those products like elemental sulfur products that are coarser, you may see some impact. I mean, I mentioned the, um, the products that were the co-granulated products, which are granulated with um, phosphate products like MAP or um, with potash. I mean, it's going to depend on the the dissolution rate of some of those products. And I know, Paulo, you've looked at, or you know a little bit about some of the phosphate sources. I mean, they aren't necessarily the quickest in terms of how they dissolve. Um, the potash source, so I, I kind of like that source because that dissolves rather readily. But, um, you know, I think that's going to be probably the main issue. And I, I mentioned this before, it's just some of those conversion fat, um, processes that require water may be impacted. But um, the, the simple fact is we don't need a lot of sulfur. I mean, in most cases, again, five pounds. So it doesn't take a whole lot really to give us maximum yield. So in terms of, you know, the amount we, we effectively need, and a lot of times that most of that we need is in the spring when we don't have a lot of mineralization occurring that, um, you know, we had moisture at that point. I think we, we probably should be, you know, not a lot of difference between the products. It's just going to be, again, mainly some of the same things that we're seeing in terms of issues with certain products releasing sulfate. So again, I think this where we're going to see what like I said, well, time will tell. We'll, we'll start getting yield here in this fall and, and just see what the differences are. Dan, you know, I think that as some of the things that interact with the dry conditions is the fact that, you know, we, we get very little movement of sulfate and it probably doesn't move as much as nitrate, but you get a dry year like this year and what fertilizer that was applied is going to be near the soil surface and just shallow incorporation, maybe with a field cultivator, a sulfate source. And then we got get to July or, or August and our plants are taking up uh, water at a much deeper depth. And are those nutrients readily available in those shallow depths? I suppose after each rainfall, the, the fine roots are taking it up. But when we get to where we're taking water up at a deeper depth, is it possible that uh, you get in the western part of the state where we have more gypsum or free gypsum and sulfate in the, in the deeper profile that maybe that uh, interacts with what sources in there or maybe even interacts with the availability because of where the water's taken up. Is that a, is that a factor you think? I mean, I guess it could be, um, you know, the thing that, that too, I get a lot is, um, you know, irrigated soils. And those are the, the soils that we, we typically recommended sulfur on sands that, um, you know, historically, even when we were getting those higher deposition rates that Paulo um, said, we were recommending 20, 25 pounds of sulfur there. And, you know, what we're seeing, you know, in these years where we have drier conditions, um, while they're not drier soils, we have a lot of irrigation out there and some of our wells are fairly high with sulfate. So between 20, I mean, I've had tests between 20 and 30 part per million. So we put on 
well over 20 pounds of sulfate. And if you irrigate early, it just kind of really goes where, where it doesn't necessitate the response or we don't see the response. So it's, you know, well, I said time will tell on this year. Um, I mean, I'd like to see the data, but again, we don't need a whole lot. And that's one of the things in most of our rain fed conditions, it's just a few pounds will be enough. You know, Jeff, you've seen it with um, some of your corn on corn research, what we can do with a couple gallons of ammonium thio that um, I, I just that difference between deficiency and insufficiency. It, it's so small that it's not that really hard to get to that sufficient level. So, you know, the, the source thing, I think there's still a lot of flexibility. Um, the sulfate question, you know, Jeff, when you were talking about, um, you know, having more hanging near the surface, that'll be an interesting thing to look at too, because we've been looking at ion probes that measure the amount or potentially the amount of sulfate that can be absorbed by a root um, over the season. And what we've typically seen with those is we'll put sink those probes and we put them in the same slot or the same spot. So it has the same area of soil it's affecting over the growing season that will get a significant amount of adsorption early on. And then the AM for like a product like AMS or potassium sulfate, we won't see a whole lot after that. And you look at the yield and the yields the same at the end. So it's still there. It's just, um, it's measuring all that readily available sulfur in the season. And I think some of that can move downward, but the, the roots will take it up. Sulfate, you know, if you look at availability, it, it'll flow into the plant once water moves in. So as long as there's roots and water moving, um, we don't see as much of an issue. And now that was one of my concerns this year is, is with stratification. You know, we weren't probably seeing a lot of water coming into the plant from the surface soils as dry as they were, whether or not you'd see some separation in where, where the sulfate is available or not. But um, again, I mean, I go back to, I think a lot of our issues are early in the growing season. So we get started getting later in the growing season. I don't think we have as big of an issue with it because the mineralization picks up and, and we get some um, sulfate moving in. So it's, it's a complex issue. It's, it's one of the things that, I mean, I thought I had a lot of the answers, a lot of it figured out. And then we started doing more research and it kind of gotten deeper down the rabbit hole now when it comes to um, some of what's going on uh, for some of these, source, these sources and some of these interactions as well, because it's, it's a, more, a little bit more of a complicated issue than I'd once thought. What do we know about interactions between sulfur and other nutrients? Well, I can talk about, you know, the obvious one that we know about is nitrogen and sulfur interactions and, and sulfur is that is a key ingredient in uh, proteins. And along with nitrogen, those two go hand in hand. And if you get these severe sulfur deficiencies that Dan that we've seen in continuous corn here at Waseca and in other locations, but really some of it here at Waseca, where we then get the plant that turns extraordinarily nitrogen deficient or can and those two kind of magnify. And we really saw that in your long-term sulfur study here this year and last year, Dan. And, and what it happens to it is the plant gets so far behind um, in its growth and development. And the main interaction that we saw this year is we had, as most everyone knows in, in corn on corn, we had a pretty good uh, hatch of corn rootworms, primarily Western corn rootworms, and then later in the season, some Northerns, but the early hatch was almost 80-90% Westerns. And uh, in those plots that had severe sulfur and nitrogen deficiency, the rootworms were so intense because they were the last corn to silk and tassel because they were so far behind that the rootworms really the corn rootworm beetles really bunched on the silks and some of those uh, ears did not uh, 
did not pollinate very well. And, and I showed a picture of that in a, in a uh, Twitter video here earlier in the year of a, of a cob that had no kernels on it. And not every plant obviously was like that, but that was an interaction that we'd never seen before. I'd seen the, the sulfur and nitrogen delay maturity of the crop to the point where it was, you know, two or three weeks behind, but I'd never seen that interaction with a crop or a, with a significant pest too. And that's one of the interesting things, Jeff, is that what that site at Waseca, because, you know, I've got two different uh, scenarios. I've got Rosemont and both continuous corn and Waseca that have been in this continuous corn for the same amount of years. And, you know, I'll see a similar uh, level of sulfur deficiency early on uh, at those two sites. And then at Rosemont, where we're in a deeper loss, we get towards about V10 or so in corn, then it'll start to green up. So that, you know, tells me there's more mineralization probably occurring there. Uh, we'll see, see some striping on the lower leaves um, later in the season, you know, towards tasseling or whatever. And those are probably the leaves that were already heavily striped at Rosemont at V10. But I don't necessarily see the level of nitrogen deficiency. Now this year I did. If you look at a lot of those plots, there was a lot of nitrogen deficiency and you could really see it heavily in the the controls and then the the plots we had with tiger 90 which we've seen that um it's been a kind of an interesting thing with um broadcast and incorporated some of the, that sulfur bentonite it just does not seem to work as well it's been about only about a quarter as efficient so it takes roughly about four times as much product if not more to get me the same response i see with um you know either these co-granulated um elemental sulfur products or a sulfate source um like ammonium sulfate or potassium sulfate so, you know, the dry conditions, I think, really made the nitrogen component worse this year at Rosemont. And this Waseca has been hammered because I think it was 80, 85 bushel difference last year in those controls. I mean, it, it's, it's been consistently that way. And it's something about that soil, no matter how much nitrogen I put on there, we get that interaction occurring. And I can get some pretty substantial sulfur responses in those, those uh, conditions. I mean, the only time I've seen it at other sites has been at Rosemont when we've been on a situation where we've been on some eroded hillsides when I've had organic matter um, less than two percent then I've got some of those interactions to occur but um, it's that the Waseca soil there that that heavy you know some of those uh, Websters it's one of those things I guess I didn't believe that um, you're seeing a lot of sulfur response in these soils and then you know some of the data you've, you've had in, in Giles when he was there working in, in some of the stuff I've had too has been pretty substantial terms of what we can get for sulfur responses in some of those soils. Yeah, Dan, you made a comment that I think is really interesting because it, it reminded me of, of something I've seen here on occasion, probably more often than, than not. And that is you get that early season sulfur deficiency and striping in the corn up to about V6 or somewhere in there. And then around V8 to V, you mentioned V10, but from V8 to V12, sometimes the plants kind of grow out of it on these high organic matter soils. And they they actually look pretty healthy. But then occasionally, Dan, and I saw this this year, and I saw a little bit of it last year, it kind of turns south again at, at R1 and in the early, um, early reproductive stages from kind of R1 to R3, where sometimes it starts showing up again. And it, it could be a pattern of, of uptake in the plant, or it could be the translocation from the plant as it gets to the grain fill period after R3. But it's interesting that you, you do see that kind of it starts, it goes away a little bit, and then it comes back and it can be, uh, and both of those ends, I think, affect potential yield and, and the yield response to sulfur that we see on these soils. 
And I've seen it, Jeff. I mean, we had some studies out in Renville County on some um, pothole areas that are you know low in the landscape. Um, if you go out to those fields, they're striped early on. It almost looked like iron deficiency. When you looked at it, um, it looked just absolutely nasty out in these spots. And um, I go out roughly around, you know, R2 uh, when silking was, or when uh, pollination was done and you'd go look at these fields and even up to the ear, you look at those, the leaves under them and it almost would look like ma magnesium deficiency kind of when I looked at it because it was lower leaves, um, faint striping. And so it's, it's a situation where that's what kind of made me think about, you know, what's happening in these soils, whether or not it's an issue with um, the, just the conversion, you know, and what's happening because there is some data. I know our, our soil chemist here on campus, she's been, she's looked at changes in um, species of sulfur in the soil over time. She was actually, I think, looking at lake bed sediment um, in some of these pothole regions. Um, so similar to kind of what those areas, those, those low areas would have been at one point in time. And seeing uh, what we see called reduced sulfur, essentially what's happening is the sulfur is becoming a, a less available form. And it's kind of a cyclical where that starts to become less available in the fall. And then it, it kind of ramps up availability as it oxidizes in the summer. And it just kind of is a peaks and valleys in terms of availability. And it kind of made me start thinking a little bit about, you know, what's happening in these soils um, that it's, it's a little more complex than just organic matter. And that was one of the things I was going by a lot. It was just, um, you know, if you get about three, 4% organic matter, you shouldn't need any sulfur and um, except for potentially in continuous corn. And I think it's a little bit more complex situation. So that's why I've been recommending sulfur in more of these, um, particularly these high organic matter situations. Because I think, um, you know, we see that reduction occurring um, and it happens kind of in the fall to the winter. And it's just a question of how quickly these soils can pick back up. And it's amazing. I think how much that that initial five pounds or, or you know, maybe a couple pounds that's taken up through about V5 is important to that plant in terms of setting it back. And if you just, if you can get it by V5, it seems to be okay. But if that extends out any longer, it um, seems to see a reduction in yield and you know, Rosemont, we still see a yield difference at that site, even if it starts to green up, but it's nothing like we see at Waseca. So it's, you know, kind of tell it that, that overall stressor, how, how critical that is and how much that can set the crop back, particularly if you have that uh, sulfur deficiency occur later in the growing season. What suggestions do you have for farmers thinking about applying sulfur for the 2022 crop? Well, I'm not sure I'd make any changes to your management. Um, you know, I wish I had a good tool to tell you if you could, you're taking soil samples of what to use because the soil test itself, again, isn't very reliable. It's, it's one of those things that, you know, if I put on treatments, maybe through the summer, I can see some differences in sulfate. But by the time, a lot of times I get to the fall, it's everything, again, three, four, five PPM with it. And there's not a lot of difference in it, even, you know, when you can see differences going into the next year. So it's one of those things that there really isn't a good indicator of, of carryover. Uh, I would just, you know, not go too crazy on the, the, the rates. I mean, I think again, five, 10 pounds is really about all you need. Uh, one of the things that we haven't investigated, which I really need to do is to look at what's happening in some of these soils. And it kind of concerns me a little bit with the amount of sulfate and the amount of elemental being applied to the pH, just to see, um, you know, how we're acidifying things. It's one of the things that I, it popped in my mind a couple of years ago to start looking at. And I think we'll see if we can try to get some stuff set up this year, because we see a lot of surface soil starting to acidify right now. So that's one of the things that, um, you know, I don't really think there's really a need to push the rates 
um, in, in really any year is again, five, 10 pounds, and then mineralization should kick in unless you've got a really severely deficient situation with low organic matter. Um, I don't think there's really much justification to doing it. So I, again, I don't know if I'd really change things. Um, I don't think I'd eliminate it. Um, if you want to go a little bit on the, the lower side, you might be able to do it, but it'd be nice if, um, you know, those soil samples coming in, if you had sulfate run, it was, could reliably tell you what's there. And it, particularly in the, the zero to six inches, it's really, I don't think it's that reliable. You really have to look at a profile or at least a two foot sample. I think to give you a general indicator because that's particularly when we start picking up gypsum layers, that's the depth it takes. One of the suggestions that I would have, Dan, for for our region here in the glacial till soils, at least in south central Minnesota, is in continuous corn, I, I think you want almost double those rates because uh, in corn after beans, I agree, five, 10 pounds goes a long ways, even a couple, like you said, a couple gallons of ammonium thiol. But when you get in this continuous corn, it just seems like such an unknown that just it, it's hard to put a finger on how these fields can be so deficient, especially in your long-term study here, where we're putting that elemental out there in the same plots over and over again, and it still doesn't seem to, to make a benefit. You'd think you'd have some residual, and then you'd have the new stuff, and it just, it's kind of, it, there's a lot of unknowns there, I think, yet, especially yeah. with those, especially with elemental, and, and the micronized products seem to be a lot better than elemental. Yeah, and that's one of the things with Elemental. And I think what's happening with particularly those Tiger 90 products, if you're, you're broadcasting and incorporating right away, um, what's supposed to happen with those products, again, is they, they absorb water. That's what the bentonite's for. And that's supposed to then disperse that or break that product apart and just disperse it. And if you bury that, um, Elemental Sulfur by nature is hydrophobic, so it doesn't dissolve in water. So if you get it in a soil that has very low porosity, and as high moisture, what it's going to do essentially is drive those particles together. And it's really not going to allow them to come apart. And it's going to act like a very large elemental sulfur particle, which is bad in terms of oxidation because it's going to oxidize very slowly. And I think that's really what's happening in our soils. I thought kind of, Jeff, you know, over time, that's the reason to run these consecutive years that we might see increased availability as, you know, maybe we run a tillage implement through there. It could break some of that elemental sulfur apart and scatter it a little bit better of some of the previous applications, but it's just been consistent in terms of um, the results. It's been roughly about a quarter of the availability. And the acidification thing is, is one of the things I guess I'm concerned about because of the elemental, I mean, it will acidify. I mean, AMS can also acidify. This is one of the more acidifying um, nitrogen sources. So it's one of the, I think, a good researchable question to look at. Um, you know, you mentioned rate, Jeff. Uh, the Waseca site is the only site in my long-term study that we've been seeing any difference between the five and 10 pound rates. So it's taken at least 10 pounds at Waseca relative to the other sites where it's taken, well, at least the site at Rosemont. Um, Becker has been slightly different. It's been closer to 20 pounds. It's been the optimal rate, but their source doesn't matter. So, I mean, I could I apply anything as long as I had about 20 pounds on it was fine, which is weird because we apply, you know, more than, you know, one to one and a half to two times that amount in the irrigation water on a yearly basis. So I think that's all coming early where we're uh, setting things back and having to just go a little bit quicker in the, the spring is better. So I would agree, Jeff. I mean, I think rate wise, at least 10, probably in continuous, at least in continuous corn in, your, in those areas and those poorly drained soils, if not 15. 
Um, I don't know if we necessarily need 20, but uh, five is, isn't really going to be enough unless you band it. I think you could get away with that with ATS banded, but it's really not going to work with the broadcast. You need to be looking at um, 10 pounds at least. Then uh, let me jump in here quick and throw something at you. Um, I, I have experienced some issues with uh, soil tests and, and measurements of sulfur, like I mentioned earlier. Um, I, I think it would be more realistic for the farmer to, to go and, and put down the sulfur and now rely on a soil test for sure to tell them whether or not he has enough. Uh, do you think that is a good approach or do you think that there should be both a combination of doing a soil test and then checking whether or not you need to apply the sulfur? Well, I think that the thing that seems to be a better indicator is organic matter, because that gives you an idea of the potentially mineralizable pool. So the higher the organic matter, you know, roughly it should equate to more mineralizable sulfur. It still doesn't help you early in the season when soils are cool and it can't mineralize. Um, the other thing, too, that's been challenging on many of my studies, and it's one of the interactions we didn't talk about, was phosphorus and sulfur. And it's really not an interaction between those two nutrients um, as much as it is phosphorus contamination in the, 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 or sulfur contamination in the phosphate fertilizers. There's still a small percentage of sulfur in MAP or DAP when you apply it. It's, it's not much, but it can equate to about three, four, five pounds. So overall, that can be, um, you know, enough where it, if we start doing testing, that's why I've gone to lower rates around five pounds with some of my studies, because um, it's really hard to separate some of those out. In those long-term studies, we've actually eliminated MAP and DAP, and I've gone to liquids that have a much lower sulfate contamination just to try to be able to tease out differences among the products. And it's been working better than that. So, you know, I just think you look at your organic matter, you look at your drainage, um, Corn, soybean, corn, corn, poor drainage, um, corn, corn, about any situation, I'd probably be looking at some sulfur. Uh, if you're in a corn, soybean situation where your drainage, when you don't have, if you get outside of, you know, central Minnesota, you know, 4% organic matter higher, you're probably not going to see much of a response. And then the, the silt loams are kind of a weird one because they can be 3% or less. And I don't see a lot of response, but those soils can really pump out sulfate. So, you know, looking at it, you know, what I suggest most growers apply, you know, I don't think it's a bad idea, but if you're going to do that and you're unsure and you think your soils have adequate sulfate, I wouldn't go crazy on the rate. Because again, that's the thing I kind of concern about is acidification at this point, um, because you're just hastening the need for lime application at some point, which can be difficult to find for some growers. So that's, that's kind of the, the main concern on my part, but um but yeah, I mean, Paulo, it's it's one of those things that I think you see more growers. You just look at the sulfate use in the state or the sulfur use in the state. It's increased substantially that most growers are just it's becoming a routine part of their, their fertilization programs. Dan, I totally agree with your assessment of the silt loam soils. What I've seen in southeast Minnesota is you can have a three to four uh, percent organic matter uh, silt loam in this in southeast Minnesota and five pounds of sulfur in any way you put it out there seems to be adequate. And your yield response is never quite as large as we would get here on our glacial till soils in South Central Minnesota that have you know four and a half to maybe 6% organic matter. So texture does seem to have a difference, make a difference, or is it drainage is what you mentioned earlier? It, could be, it could be both, Jeff. I mean, I think you look at the sulfate soil test, well, I don't you know, condone using them. Uh, typically the silt loams will probably be more towards, you know, six or seven PPM where my, some of my clay soils will be you know, four or five. 
you know, and you could ask, well, well then why can't you use that for um, an indicator? Uh, there just isn't enough difference there because most labs report to the nearest um, whole integer. So the nearest one place that there isn't enough give there um, to come up with a, you know, a critical, a straight critical level for that. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things that, um, I mean, there's still something there with it, but again, like Jeff, as you're saying, it just isn't as high of a, a response that we see in some cases, even if we do see a response in some of those soils. And a lot of that just speaks to the mineralization potential. And we see that for nitrogen too. I mean, I've seen, you know, check yields in some of my plots and those silt loams come back 220 bushel, which is just a substantial amount of corn produced with no nitrogen. And that, and that just attests to what those soils can pump out for um, mineralizable end because of their aeration and they have enough water holding capacity to really to pump out a mineralizable N or sulfur. All right, any last words from the group? So one of the things we have recently is a blog post on alfalfa and sulfur. I know we've been talking a lot about corn. Um, I have seen some interesting results, uh, some similar results to corn. Um, you know, what was interesting on the alfalfa is we've got two locations at Rosemont. One is um, a higher organic matter, kind of uh, more sandier, or more coarser soil, be more of a soil that we'd see that be irrigated, although it's not irrigated itself versus a deeper loss at that site. And we get um, a greater tonnage off of that um, sandier, that site that should be irrigated. And we get a, a substantial more response than that deeper loss. But I mean, a lot of the same things we're talking about corn really bear true for that. Um, you know, optimal rates have been around 15 pounds for alfalfa. If you're in a high production system trying to push tonnage, I would probably go to 20, 25 on it, but um, you know, we've been struggling to get responses in sulfur in the past in alfalfa. And I've got, um, you know, three studies there at that same, uh, that same Rosemont station that have been seeing some consistent yield responses to it. So seeing a lot of the same things, again, sources, um, seeing issues with the bentonite product, um, um, more of a benefit uh, from either a sulfate source or some of these, these um, co-granulated products seem to be kind of a better way to go. But um, probably have another blog post when we get data out this um this winter to kind of update some of that um from this year because we had some struggles this year with water on some of the sites but still looking like some of the same effects just based on some of the preliminary data i've pulled out of that location one of the things that i'd mentioned now you know dan mentioned earlier that giles and i had been looking at sulfur for quite a while and i was thinking about this during the podcast here and it's been 25 years now and one of the early things that we noticed, and this was uh, kind of in the early years, was the interaction with tillage. Um, wherever we had reduced till systems, that, that uh, effect of sulfur seemed to be greater. And I think, Dan, it can even lead sometimes to a response in, in soybeans and the following year in these reduced till systems or no-till beans or something like that. So that's a, another factor that we probably wouldn't elaborate on, but I'd certainly consider if I was a, if I was a grower in those tillage systems. Yeah, and I'll, I'll see some of that, Jeff, because we do have a no-till soybean site just um, up close to Madison Lake this year. Um, so we'll see it. Just talking to Brad Carlson a little bit, he was out at that site looking at it. You could see where it looked like some differences in maturity. You know, um, you know we're kind of talking towards the end of, um, middle of the end of September, it looked like uh, some of the plots may have been um, a little bit further ahead than others. So we'll see what happens. I've seen it on uh, some sites we had down by New Ulm um, a few years ago, or it's been quite a few years ago, where we had some strips in there that you could see down to the row where we had, um, there you see differences in um, what was, you know, turning and in what wasn't on some of those sites. So the, the soybean side of it's been kind of a struggle 
And uh, that's why I wanted to get a no-till site in this year, just to see if that um, made a difference. Uh, the only site I've consistently seen an effect of sulfur in, in soybean has been up at Staples. And we saw that for a few years uh, until I, we started to see the sulfate values in the irrigation water they were using creep up. Then that started to go away. Um, some of the other sites have been kind of hit or miss. And I get that question a lot. Um, you know, what I've, I've seen work well in the past, though, is, is really push, uh, if you're going to push sulfur into corn year, and we do see some carryover to the following year. And I saw that at a site we had over by Red Wing where we picked up five, six bushel one of the year where we were applying 25 pounds ahead of the corn. And it was kind of a, we had three um, the corn soybean rotations that we assessed over six years. And it wasn't until like the been year four and year six with the soybeans, we were, we were starting to see, I think, depletion of uh, sulfate in those control plots where we hadn't applied sulfur, where it was, it was starting to be picked up in the beans as well. So it does affect it. Um, I don't know if I would directly apply it though. I think it, um, to the beans, I think I would worry about it in the corn. Um, if you're taking care of it there, you have a good fertility program there. Um, I don't think the beans are going to be much of an issue unless maybe you're in these, um, the situations like you're talking about is some of these reduced still situations. That's one thing that's got to be followed up on a little bit more. All right. That about does it for the podcast this week. We'd like to thank the Agricultural Fertilizer Research and Education Council, AFRAC, for supporting the podcast. Thanks for listening.